If you have uh, your Bible with you or whatever source you're going to be using, make your way to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. John is the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you come to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. We're in our uh, third week in looking at John's ministry leading up to the baptism of Jesus. And just in case you've missed any of the last couple of weeks, John is in the wilderness. The wilderness refers to a desolate area. It's uninhabited. Uh, most likely things don't typically grow there. He's at the Jordan River. He is preaching a message of repentance. He's leading people to follow with a baptism of repentance and then to bear fruit of repentance. And as John is preaching this message, the masses are beginning to come out. The other Gospels tell us that from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region, the people were going out to hear John's message and to be a part of what was going to do. And as he began attracting certain groups who were interested and wanted to know and wanted to apply what he was teaching, he also began attracting some Jewish religious elites. And that's where our passage is this morning. We're going to begin in verse 19. These individuals have come out to the wilderness, to the desert, to see what this camel-haired, locust-eating and wild-honey-eating man was doing and what he was preaching. As we've dealt with John um, and thinking about this morning, today's message may be the most important of our three weeks in spending on John because we're going to be dealing with two questions that he was asked and questions that we too have to answer in our life. Thankfully, these answers don't change no matter what period of life you find yourself in, whether you're young, adult, elderly, uh, elderly, if you want to call yourself that, uh, whether you have kids or no kids, grandparents, it doesn't matter. But here are the questions. Two questions he has given. Who are you and why are you? The question of who are you deals with our identity. The question of why are you deals with our purpose. And no matter what stage of life we are in, we have to have the answers to these questions. Singles, couples, marrieds, we have to know our identity. We have to know the purpose to which we are here for because they will determine every activity we engage ourselves in and every conversation we allow ourselves to be a part of. When any entity loses its identity and its purpose, it's destined for trouble. We can see this in our country. We can see this in companies. We can see this in churches. You can find this in marriages. And the same goes for us individually. When any individual who loses or does not know their identity or purpose, they're going to be destined for trouble. The reason that is, as we're going to see with John, is if we don't know who we are and what we are to do, then we will allow someone else to determine it for us and define it for us. So we're in the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in verse 19 of chapter 1. The Gospel of John is written by the Apostle John, different person than the Baptist John. The Apostle John was one of Jesus' disciples. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. This particular gospel is believed to be written after 70 A.D., which places after a very historic time stamp when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The reason we can come to this uh, understanding is because John will refer to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias, which was not given that name until later into the first century. We also find throughout the Gospel of John that John does not refer to the Sadducee party at all. The reason is the Sadducee party, their job was to maintain the temple. But he does refer to the religious leaders as the Jews. And every now and then in our passage today, he will refer to the Pharisees. And so let's read it and we'll walk through it. Verse 19. 
And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, Now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked them, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, and John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray together. Father, we, we read your word, and we come before you humbling ourselves and asking that your spirit would speak your word, your truth into our life. Father, it's my prayer that we all understand our identity and our purpose before we leave this place, but that can only be done by your power and your authority over us. So help us submit to you. Help us have ears open to hearing what you want us to know and to understand. Help us have a mind to be able to not only have the knowledge, but be able to apply it and a heart that is willing to do so. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the promises we find in your word. We thank you for what you're doing in this world, even if we don't understand why or what is going on. Lord, we lean upon you. We trust in you. And we thank you that you will always be with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And so we come into this place with expectation of you doing a great and mighty work in our lives. We surrender ourselves and ask you to have your way with us. Again, thank you for this day. I thank you for what's going to happen here in the next couple minutes as we walk through your word and that your spirit would just guide and lead us and open it up that we might understand things we've never seen or understood before. We pray us all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So we've been spending several weeks looking at John the Baptist's ministry. We're going to get to the baptism of Jesus next week. This particular event is unique to the Gospel of John. The sending of the priests and the Levites out from Jerusalem lets us know that John the Baptist has begun to get quite an audience and quite a bit of interest from people who wanted to know and apply what he was teaching, but also people who just wanted to figure him out. There had been no one like John for about 400 years in the Israelite history. And so this was definitely an event to which people were responding to. Now last week the question was posed by people in the crowds. What shall we do? They wanted to know the application of this message of repentance, the baptism, and this bearing of fruit with repentance. They wanted to be able to apply what John was teaching. But the question posed to John today carries a completely different agenda. These groups that came out to see John were, as he was preaching this message of repentance, they did not come to see John. They did not come to know what John was preaching or even know how to apply it to their life. They wanted to know, by what authority, John, are you doing what you are doing out here? And so in our own passage, we have two parties on a mission with two very different agendas. John was on a mission from God with the agenda to prepare the people for the coming of the Christ or the Messiah. This party from Jerusalem, which comes out to John, was on a mission, but a man-made mission with an agenda to gain information and not to know about repentance. 
The party from Jerusalem didn't really care about John's message. They had a job. They had to report back to this Pharisee party that sent them to gain information about who this person was. So they asked him a question, who are you in verse 19? And in verse 20, 25, why are you? To which John gives them both an answer to both questions, which we can apply to our life today as witnesses for Jesus Christ. So first question is, who are you? And that's at the end of verse 19. This question is given four different times, though in two different ways. Verse 21, it's are you, are you? And then finally in 22 again, who are you? The first question posed to John is, who are you? Which John knew what they were trying to infer. Because we have to keep in mind, as we've looked at the other Gospels, the expectation and the speculation, the anticipation of John was that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the one who was going to bring hope and deliverance to all of God's people. And John has this understanding when they ask him initially, who are you? He immediately comes out and denies it emphatically. I am not the Christ. In verse 20, that double usage he confessed did not deny, but he confessed is that John says this forcefully. He wants them to fully understand he is not the Christ to which the Old Testament prophecies had spoken of. The word Christ means anointed one or appointed one by God. It is not Jesus' last name. He was not Mr. Christ or Jesus Christ. And so when you stub your toe or hit your thumb and you say Jesus Christ, you are literally saying Jesus, the anointed or appointed one of God. It is his authoritative title. And so if you ever do say that, I don't know if you do, but make sure since you have his attention, continue to talk to him. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one God has appointed since the beginning of time. And the Gospel of John has been pointing this out from the very beginning of his Gospel. In chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And He was with God and He was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's what makes Him the Christ. John says, I am not the Christ. Even though this Jewish party, even though his crowds had this thought, this, this wondering, is this man dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, is he the divine deliverer we have been hoping for and waiting for? Is he the one that's going to deliver us as God's covenantal people from all of this that we are going through? John says no. No, 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 no. And this is huge in understanding our identity. Who are you? See, John had a platform. John had an audience. He had people that were interested in him, probably hanging on his every word. But John did not fall into temptation to put himself in the place of God. First thing we have to understand about our identity is who we are not. So i got to break all of our hearts. There's no one here is the greatest gift to the world. There's no one here who is God. There is no one here who's even control over their own life. If you don't believe me, just think back in the last six months how out of control things have been, and we haven't been able to fix it or figure it out. It is a revelation to us that I am not God. So I have to understand that about my identity. I am not in control. I am not the authority in my life or over other people's lives. John understood this. He emphatically denied to be the Christ. And so the Jewish party turned to their next option in verse 20. Are you Elijah? Again, John says, no. 
The thought of being Elijah stemmed from the belief that since Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire and did not die, that God was going to send him back to prepare the people for the Messiah. It comes from Malachi chapter four and chap- or chapter three and chapter four. In Malachi 4, 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Here's a sad thing. The Jewish party, even the religious elite, they were aware that something miraculous was happening. There's something extraordinary going on out here in the desert, out here by the Jordan River, and yet they had no desire to be a part of it. They just wanted the information. Just tell us who you are. Just tell us why you're doing what you're doing so we can go and complete our homework assignment. That's the only reason we're here, John. John says he's not. And even though these individuals knew the Scripture, even though they were aware that the Christ was promised, even though they were aware of the prophecy of Elijah, they were completely unaware that the true living Word was standing in their midst. John told them in verse 27, Among you stands one you do not No. They had information, they had knowledge, but they didn't have a seeking heart. There was an understanding, though, that there's something different about you, John. But sadly, these individuals had no desire to know what that difference was. John's answer brings up a, a question we have to deal with. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, it's recorded that Jesus refers to John as the Elijah who is to come. Elijah was believed to be the next to last man before the coming of the Christ, so the forerunner. John's answer in saying that he's not Elijah reveals that he had a limited understanding of his own role in this whole thing. He knew he was commissioned by God. He knew he was preparing the way, but he did not yet make the association of being Elijah. And I imagine as John answered their question, no, I'm not Elijah, and Jesus is there on that day, can you just picture Jesus? Silly camel-haired cousin man. Because Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew John's full identity. Even though John himself struggled with it, but there's parts of his identity he knew. Since he denied to be Christ and he denied to be Elijah that leads to their third question are you the prophet that's at the end of verse 21 and again John says no now John was a prophet but that's not the question they were asking it's referring to a prophecy delivered by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 it says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is him you shall listen to this prophet from the prophecy in Deuteronomy, was expected to be the final prophet before the end of all things, or the end of times. The Jews believed this prophet would set up the end times. And so from these three questions that John has given us, we can see the Jewish leaders are all over the time map. They want to know, are you the Christ? Are you the fruition of the Messiah? John says, no. He says, are you Elijah? Are you the fruition of the forerunner of the Messiah? John says, no. Well, then are you the prophet? Are you the fruition that the end is nigh? John says, no. They had no clue. The people who understood God's word the best were stumped in figuring out, where are we with God? Where are we on his timeline? Where where is he and what are we supposed to be doing? 
John denies all three, which leads to them coming out with their true intentions in verse 22. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They've come to a point where they say, look, John, we just, we're really here because we were sent. Just tell us something so we can go back and say that we completed our assignment. That's all we really are here for. They were exasperated. And instead of trying to know and understand who John is, did you catch what they did? They tried to place an identity on John. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? But see, John knew his identity. He knew he was supposed to do, but this is where we wrestle with identity. If we don't understand our God-given identity, then we will allow outside sources to identify it for us. We will allow them to tell us, well, since you're from Missouri, you must be like this. Or since you're married, you must be like this. Since you're from this generation, you must be like this. And when we do that, we will find ourselves in trouble. John wasn't going to fall into their trap. And when they finally got to the point of stop assuming who John was and actually asking who John was, do you notice how John identifies himself in verse 23? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I love how we tend to identify ourselves. We tend to identify ourselves by where we live, what job we have, what our relationship status is, or, uh, you know, what sort of things we like. Or you're a Chiefs fan, or you're a Broncos fan, or you're a Raiders fan, whatever. We tend to identify ourselves with other things in this world. But John, he kind of does that. He identifies himself by the job that God is commissioned to have. But if we go a little bit deeper, we see how we are to identify ourselves. It's the same way John identified himself as a witness. We are to do, be defined by the Word of God. That's how John identified himself. He was defined by God's Word spoken over us. And so we have to know if our identity is defined by the Word of God, how does God's Word define us in this world? Not how does a, a politician or a government or a teacher or a parent or anyone else, how does God define you and me in His Word? Well, if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see when God created mankind, He created them in what? His image and His likeness. We read in the Bible that God is love. He can do nothing but love. And so when you and I were created in God's image and likeness, it was created in love. I am loved by a God who created me for a purpose. And the only way I'm going to know that purpose is to know the identity to which God has already given me. The problem we have in our identity crisis is we have a sin issue. And it's our sin issue which causes us to look to other things to give us our identity. Well, I'm married. Well, I work here. Well, this is my income. Well, this is how many years of school I have. Well, blah, 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 whatever. When we do that, we're going to lead ourselves into trouble in allowing other things to identify us. The, the Bible reveals that God created His image and His likeness in love, 
And He created us for a relationship with Him. We are to be identified by a relationship. But since we have an identity crisis in our sin, the Bible also reveals God so desires a relationship with you and me that He's the one that pursues after us. And the reason we don't pursue after Him, again, is because of our identity crisis. It's because of our sin. We do things we know we shouldn't do. And we don't do things we know we should do. But in the midst of all of this, the Bible reveals over and over again, we are still loved by the God who created us in His image and His likeness. And it reveals us so much to the point that our God, the Father, knows every detail about our life. He knows every hair or lack thereof on our heads. He knows every deepest, darkest secret you have. He knows everything that brings you joy and everything that brings you boredom. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our true self and why we do what we do, even if we know we shouldn't do it. He knows that about us. Rick Warren writes that you didn't create yourself, so there's no way you can tell yourself what you were created for. This means if we go look for self-help books or we go look to some other authority figure to help give us our identity, we are always going to be feeling a sense of lacking because it is only God who defines us. And it is only His Word to which we find that identity. But we rest with that identity process. Our identity crisis. But here's the greatest thing about God's love. God knows that about everyone here. That's why he was sending Jesus. Sending Jesus to fix our identity crisis. Therefore, the only way we can try to find our true identity, or actually find our true identity, is in a restored relationship with God. That's the only way. And when that relationship gets off, then we start questioning everything. We start having doubts. But once we accept our identity given by God, and we understand it is our sin that is keeping us from our full identity, we also understand that Jesus made a way to restore our true identity. We understand that we need to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and return to the identity the loving God created us for, to know Him and belong to Him. The Bible refers to this this transformation as salvation and a spiritual adoption. God the loving Father adopts us even when we were enemies of His, even we were opposed to His love and His goodness for us. And so when I understand that my identity now, if I'm a Christian, is that I have been adopted by God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I am now a child. I am a Christian. I am saved. And so now my identity is found under the authority of God, in fellowship with God, and my life is meant to honor God. That's my identity. J.I. Packer points out the very concept of adoption is itself a proof and guarantee of the preservation of the saints. For only bad fathers throw their children out of the family, even under provocation. And God is not a bad father, but a good one. The entire Christian life has to be understood in the terms of adoption. 
And just as the knowledge of His unique sonship controlled Jesus' living, His own life, so He insists that the knowledge of our adoptive sonship controls our lives too. Our identity is found in our relationship with God and our relationship is tied to imitating, glorifying, and pleasing the Father. I can only find my identity through Christ. That's it. And once we know this, then our identity goal is to live as children pleasing the Father. I just want to please God. And our living out our identity as adopted children in this world then reflects the love of God so the world can know what we have come to know. I belong to Him eternally, securely. and I am known by Him as His own. So I live out that identity in, in marriage. I live out on that identity as a, as a father. I live out that identity in my vocation. I'm a child of God. I am loved and belong to Him. And through that identity, I allow other people to see the love of God and experience the love of God. When we allow God's Word to define our identity, who we are, we can have assurance it is safe and eternalized. But you notice when John gives them the answer in verse 23, he defines himself by God's word. What, what a great place to be. Who are you? And we immediately say, well, you know, I'm not Mike. I'm spit out God's word at him. That should, that should, everyone should love that. But here the religious leaders, the, the group sent by the Pharisees, the Levites and priests, when John defines himself by God's word, they didn't understand it. They didn't like it. They came to inspect John, and when John gave the answer to who he was, but he didn't fit their credentials, they turned to the next question, why are you? Why are you doing what you're doing? See, when we allow God's Word to define us, it is not going to, it's not going to fulfill the credentials of a worldly people. We are going to be at odds with the world. The Jewish party wanted to know by whose authority John was doing what he was doing. And when he gave them the answer, they didn't like it. And so they said, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? And, and if we understand the custom, see, in this day, baptism wasn't a foreign concept. Jews and Gentiles were baptized all the time. But in this particular time period, what happened is a Jew would baptize himself and a Gentile would baptize himself. It was self-baptism. But John was doing something completely different. He was calling all people, even Jewish people, to repent and be baptized in repentance. And then he performed the baptism. Well, John, this isn't our custom. This isn't our tradition. This isn't what we know. So why are you doing what you're doing the way you are doing, particularly if you're not the Christ, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet. Why do you do what you do? What is your purpose, John? What are you wanting to accomplish in here? And what John does, and we've read these verses the last couple of weeks in the other Gospels, reveals our purpose. See, once we know our identity is founded in God's Word and defined by God, we can then know our purpose. Our purpose as adopted children of God is to point people to Jesus. That's it. 
Our purpose is to point people to Jesus. This is what John does. They ask him what? He says, I'm defined by God's word. They ask him why? He says, because the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. He is so much greater than I am. And so he points them to Jesus. At Harvest Hill, our lingo is to meet Jesus. But it's the same concept. Everything we do, we want people to meet Jesus. Because once we understand we are known, loved, and owned by God, and we know God intimately, then our life purpose is to point others to Jesus so they also can be known, loved, and owned by God. And everything we do as God's people and as a church is to point people to Jesus. If we do anything else, we've completely messed up. Why do we do what we do? Because He is greater. Because He is worthy. He is the Christ. So it doesn't matter if we're playing a sport. It doesn't matter if we're working at a job. It doesn't matter if we're hanging out with our friends. We're all to point people to Jesus. We read this verse last week from Colossians. Verse 23 and 24, chapter 3. It says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. We do this by heeding Paul's instruction to the Ephesian believers. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We do this because once we understand our identity in Christ, once we understand we were once sinful and hostile and enemies of God, but now have been reconciled fully through the work of Christ and become children of God, we are seen by the Heavenly Father as holy and blameless and above reproach. That's from Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. The word reproach means to be seen in disapproval. It means to be a disappointment. Have you ever felt like you've been a disappointment? When I'm found in Christ, when my salvation is secure in what Christ did for me, God has removed all disapproval, all disappointment from me. I may be disappointed by my own actions or my own reactions, but God never looks at me that way again because I'm covered fully by the righteousness of Christ. That is my identity. And though God may not agree with everything I do or say or everything you do or say, He never sees me differently, which is why we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, to continue in the faith and in the hope of the gospel. In other words, we point to Jesus, others might know Jesus. We identify who we are by our living for God and our relationship with Him. And then John says one more thing about our purpose. Once we understand our identity, then our purpose is also to know our place. Rick Warren, if you're not familiar with that name, Rick Warren, he's done very well writing on purpose. <laughs> Uh, purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven Christ Christmas. I'm sure there's a purpose-driven Easter. I mean, he's done so well, he doesn't get a salary from his own church anymore. I mean, so he knows purpose. In the opening of his most famous book called The Purpose-Driven Life, it opens with these three words, or four words. It's not about you. The only reason we forget this truth which John spoke of, it's not about me, even though the crowds were coming to see him, even though this, this trial was being placed upon him. The only reason we forget this truth is because we forget our identity and we forget the main purpose we have in life. And we're always going to be fighting the temptation that something is about us. 
that it's about what we want. This is one of the biggest reasons churches split. It's one of the biggest reasons people leave the church. It's one of the biggest reasons marriages fail and end. And it's one of the biggest reasons pastors fail. It's because they think it's about them. Harvest Hill is not about Pastor Mike. It's not about anybody else here. It's about him. That's it. Believe it or not, Pastor Mike doesn't live at Harvest Hill. I don't own Harvest Hill. I wouldn't want to. It's not about us. Harvest Hill is about loving God and loving people. And the best way we can do that is to live in the identity that God has given us through His Word and to point others to Jesus. That's what we're about. But I've known a lot of good Christian people who have identified themselves through their job, through the family they're from, through whatever city they live in, through the relationship status. And what happens is when we identify ourselves through our marriage, and those are good things, our marriage, being employed is a good thing. Living certain places is a good thing. But when we identify ourselves through those things, what happens is those things tend to become idols. And when those things start hitting storms, we will begin to panic because we think that's what identifies us. But it's God that identifies us. Our relation to Him identifies us. And so when we rest in that truth, I'm identified as a child of God. Yes, I'm married. Yes, I'm from Stratford. Yes, I'm a pastor or whatever job you all have. Yes, I'm whatever. My identity is in Christ, and then God uses those instruments, our marriage, our family, our job, our education, to point people to Jesus. So whatever vocation or location you are in, whatever education you have, whatever financial means you have, it has been given to you by God, and as His child, God wants you to use those things to point to Jesus. The situations you find yourselves in, that's why you're there. It's to point people to Jesus. So they can be known by God and belong to Him. You may be here this morning, and the question we all have to ask is, <laughs> you may be here, you are here, and I hope you're still here with me. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning as God's children, is there something I have been, been allowing to identify me that is not of God. And they may be good things. But this is the most important. I'm His. And he is mine. I'm His child and He's my Father. That's what people need to see. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to begin this relationship with God. To be adopted into His family. Right now, you may be living in an identity crisis because you're not back in a restored relationship with Him. You need to understand grace. Grace begins, grace is unmerited favor. It is a gift we do not deserve. You can also understand it through mercy. To understand grace, you first have to understand God. God is holy. And He has holy standards. 
He created everything, which means He is the utmost authority over all life. And every human being is going to answer to Him one day. Everyone. And the reason that should be so scary is because we all know we have rebellious heart. We all know we do things we shouldn't do, and we don't do things we should do. We all know at times we don't point to Jesus. But God knows it too. Because God loved us, that's why He sent Jesus. That's why John's preparing the way, because Jesus Christ was going to be the atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice is taken from the Old Testament, in which the sacrificial system was set. There was two goats brought to the priest at the temple. And they would cast lots, and one goat would become a scapegoat, and the other goat would be sacrificed at the altar. And so the goat that would be sacrificed would be sacrificed for the sins of all the people. And they would understand that God had forgiven all their sins. And then they would take the blood of the sacrifice goat and they would splatter it on the goat of the scapegoat. It's where we get that phrase, oh, he's the scapegoat. And they would take the scapegoat and they would sh shoo it off into the wilderness as a symbol that God had accepted the sacrifice and he was removing the sins from the people. And so when I say Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice... I'm understanding that that's what God did for me through His perfect Holy Son on the cross. He took my sins and God removed them when I placed my faith in Christ alone. The appointed one, the anointed one. The Bible says Christ died on the cross. They placed Him in a tomb, but He rose three days later to show He has power over death, which is the penalty of sin. And if we come before God, even in our sinfulness, and confess that I need forgiveness, I need to be saved, I want to be your child, God in His mercy and grace and love looks at us and adopts us as His own, not expecting that we have everything figured out or everything put back together, but we come into a relationship with Him and then we allow God to do the work to prepare us for eternity. Because remember, it's not about us or what we bring to the table. And you may be here this morning and you know you need a relationship with God. You know you have yet to begin one. We're going to come to time of invitation. I'm going to be standing right here and you can come down. We can maintain six feet if you want. Say, Pastor Mike, I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I want to be a child of God. You don't have to say all that, but... One, at least, so I know why you're coming. We're going to pray together and we're going to celebrate together. Maybe you're here and you realize that you've been allowing other things to identify you instead of what God has already spoken over you. And you just need to apologize to the Father. I'm going to ask Nick, Bridget, they're going to come and lead us in a song. I want to pray over you real quick. We're going to stand and sing, and this is called a time of invitation. I'm inviting you to come.